This is Vandana Shiva and you're listening to the Enviro show on Valley Free Radio WXOJLP 103.3 FM Northampton streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org Remember listen to your mother The Enviro show thanks River Valley Co-op Northampton's locally grown food co-op located at 330 North King Street and at 228 Northampton Street in East Hampton. The co-op specializes in fresh, local, and organically grown foods from produce and cheese to fresh meats and locally baked goods. Everyone is welcome. Open 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. daily. Enviro Show thanks River Valley Co-op for their support. Do you find yourself longing for the apocalypse? I did. I was looking for a reason to live. Hi. Are you feeling tired, irritable, stressed out? Well, you might consider nature. From the people that brought you getting outside comes prescription strength nature, a non-harmful medication shown to relieve the crippling symptoms of modern life. Nature is recommended for humans of all ages, and it's great for pets, too. Nature can reduce cynicism, meaninglessness, anal retentiveness, and murderous rage. In clinical studies, nature is proven to decrease work-induced catatonia. Caution. Nature may cause you to slow down, quit your job, or seriously consider what the f*** you're doing with your life. If you are overly cynical, jaded, or emotionally numb, you may need to increase your dose of nature. Do you have trouble being even mildly uncomfortable? Nature may not be right for you. Side effects may include spontaneous euphoria, taking yourself less seriously, and being in a good mood for no apparent reason. So ask your doctor if nature is right for you. Now, literally from across the valley and around the world, it's the Enviro Show. WXOJLP 103.3 FM, Valley Free Radio, Northampton. Greetings, Earthlings. It's the COP28 and Fate Enviro Show. I am one of your co-hosts, Dio, and I'm not in the studio with... Hey, this is Glenn Ayers. Yeah. Hi, Glenn. And the 2023 United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP28, will be the 28th United Nations Climate Change Conference held... From 30 November until 12th December 2023 at the, are you ready? 
Expo City in Dubai, irony aside, we don't expect much nah, from that. Surprise. Guy McPherson returns to the show to shed oh, so much needed light on that ongoing debacle and more. As always, we will also introduce you to this week's Fool on the Hill and those whose brains were small, as well as and the usual reminder for your MAGA uncle that it's the climate crisis, stupid, and more. But first, it's time for... Revenge of the Critters, they're back. A pod of orcas in southwestern Europe sank a sailing boat on October 31st. Happy Halloween! After a non-stop 45-minute attack, Live Science reported, the incident is the fourth occurrence in two years where orcas, also known as killer whales, are blamed for sinking ships. In southwestern Europe, orca pods from the Strait of Gibraltar region have been harassing boats and their passengers for more than three years, according to a translated Facebook post made by a Polish cruise company owner of the sunken boat, a mid-sized sailing yacht named the Mama was attacked by a pod of orcas off the coast of Morocco in the Strait of Gibraltar. Major damage caused by an unknown number of orcas who repeatedly hit the yacht's rudder caused water to enter the vessel's hull. All passengers were safely evacuated before the boat sank. There it is, Glenn, again. The orcas. Yeah, I think they're trying to send us a message. It sure sounds like it gives a sinking feeling. (laughs) Fool on the hill. And nobody seems to like him. The fool on the hill. This week's Fool on the Hill is yet another Republican from Florida. It's Representative Brian Mast, who recently compared all Palestinians to Nazis. That doesn't seem very helpful, considering... Coming from someone so far out on the right, in a hearing on humanitarian aid, Mast showed up in an IDF uniform saying, it's not far stretched to say there are very few innocent Palestinian civilians. Close quote. I don't know what that costume was about, Glenn, but I wonder if he brought any war toys with him. Yeah, what a jerk. Another fool on the hill. Let's move on to the climate crisis. Well, we have a hunch that Representative Mast is clueless on the fact that it's the climate crisis, stupid. You think he read this last week? Quote, 
the Earth's temperature briefly rose above a crucial threshold that scientists have been warning for decades could have catastrophic and irreversible impacts on the planet and its ecosystems. Data shared by a prominent climate scientist show. Close quote. The piece went on to note, quote, the breach of two degrees came two weeks before the start of the UN COP28 climate conference in Dubai, where countries will take stock of their progress towards the Paris Climate Agreement pledged to limit global warming to two degrees above pre-industrial levels with an ambition of limiting it to 1.5 degrees. Close quote. Okay, for a little context on that, we move over to Jessica Wildfires, who did one of her blog pieces stating, it's official, red alerts have gone out across the entire country of Brazil as the heat index hits 137 degrees Fahrenheit. The high temperature combined with humidity has made it impossible for most people to carry out their normal lives. There's already reports of power outages. People can't work. They can't run errands. They can barely sleep. And it's not even summer there yet. Close quote there. And also in Brazil, so-called Swifties were passing out left and right. One even died at a Taylor Swift concert down there in that heat. Taylor and company soon flew home. They fled north on their private jet, which, of course, is part of the problem. Go to the blog, click on the link in that piece. Oh, that's Enviro Show without the W.blogspot.com. So, Glenn, that's hot. Yeah. And we'll talk more about this with Guy McPherson, but. That really is a good example of how rapidly things are changing and we're in the midst of it right now. And sorry, but you can't keep flying around on your private jets. <laughs> There's a lot of other things that are going to be ending or have to end in order to get some kind of control on the situation. But, well, we'll get into that with Guy. That's right. Yeah. And now I'm thinking of the proposed Hanscom airfield expansion over near Concord in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Oh, their brains were small. They were big, dumb, and slow. They couldn't go with the flow. Their brains were small and they died. Hey, we have some good news about those whose brains were small. It seems the world's largest biomass company is near collapse, proving once again that natural selection works. This year has been a financial disaster for Enviva, the world's largest producer of wood pellets for the biomass energy industry, with more than $250 million in losses to date and worsening results expected in the fourth quarter. The once high-flying company, Viability, by its own admission, is in grave doubt. Close quote. Of course, 
it's too late to save all those forests in the southeast U.S. that have been shipped off to Europe to be misrepresented as green energy, but hopefully our northeast forests will be spared from this particular many-headed monster whose brains are too small. That said, what about out west? Oi, go click on that link. Again, enviroshow.blogspot.com. Yeah, well, the whole biomass thing was always a scam. It was always based on stealing renewable energy incentives, the you know, billions of dollars in government incentives, taking them away from truly renewable energy. It was always a scam. And, you know, they still made their billions of dollars. And that money now has all disappeared. Those and Viva plants are probably all going to shut down. A lot of people are going to be out of work and they've left behind a area of devastation worse than what has been happening to the tropical rainforests in the Amazon. And that's been happening mostly in the Southeast United States. So it was always a scam. It was always going to fail. It was a house of cards. But, you know, the people that wanted to make the money, they made it. The government collaborated with them to line a few pockets. <laughs> Most of the money probably went to offshore accounts. Right. And there you go. You know, an, another way to fool people who, who want to see something done about the climate and instead steal the money and put it in the pockets of rich investors and speculators. Right. Those dinosaurs aren't dead yet, though. There's two biomass bills on Beacon Hill as we speak. Mm. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, we need to get all that really dirty energy out of all of these green energy programs. Uh, they never should have been there to begin with. They were only put into those programs, again, by some special interests, you know, in Massachusetts here, it was Senator Stephen Brewer who put a few words into some existing legislation that perverted the entire intent of the green energy efforts. And we're still now trying to clean up the mess left behind by Stephen Brewer. Fair enough. All right, let's move on to the Enviro Show echo chamber, echo chamber. We replay Common Dreams' frightening piece regarding the U.S. media, with a few notable exceptions, giving his malignancy a free pass for going full-blown fascist of late. Yes, we've known for years the Mad King was, well, you know, the apprentice for history's worst. But now he's saying the quiet part out loud. An example, quote, during a recent rally, Trump pledged to root out the communist, Marxist, fascist, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country that lie and steal and cheat on elections and will do anything possible. They'll do anything, whether legally or illegally, to destroy America and to destroy the American dream. Close quote. Straight out of El Duce's playbook, I must say, Glenn. Gosh, I wish I was there to hear it in person. <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, 
So the mainstream media, they better get it together. They didn't report on this for what it was. And it's been going on like this for a couple of weeks now. It's coming out full fascist playbook. Yeah. Well, you know, the right wingers are trying to take over all democracies at this point. And, you know, they've won a few elections recently, but I think here they're going to lose big time. Let's hope so. And let's do everything we can to make sure that happens. I think it's time for a quote of the week. All right, Envirational listeners, this one is spot on for this particular show. We are about to sacrifice our civilization for the opportunity of a very small number of people to continue to make enormous amounts of money. We are about to sacrifice the biosphere so that rich people in countries like mine can live in luxury. But it is the sufferings of the many which pay for the luxuries of the few. Close quote. And that was Greta Thunberg. And that brings us to our uh, discussion with Guy McPherson. Yeah, so let's do a little trigger warning at the beginning of this interview for folks who maybe can't handle reality. And that's probably not most of our EnviroShow listeners because we talk about reality. This is a reality-based show. We talk about reality a lot. But this is a pretty intense interview with Guy. He's an intense guy. And it is about the reality of the climate emergency. And I think that we've had him on the show in the past a few times. He's always been spot on. He really started saying things that no one else was really saying out loud. And I'm not talking about being a fascist. I'm talking about the scientific reality of the climate emergency. And finally, you know, quite a few other climate scientists and even some policymakers are starting to say the things that Guy was saying five or more years ago. And that is that, you know, you can just forget about 1.5 degrees like the Paris Agreement as James Hansen just said recently, that's that's as dead as a doornail. And even two degrees, there is almost no chance of staying below two degrees. As a matter of fact, the models now predict that we are going to go well past two degrees. So we'll get into all of that with Guy. But I just wanted to give that warning for folks who may be feeling a little bit vulnerable or you know just don't want to face reality. But otherwise, listen to this. I think that what we're going to be talking about is the reality and how to prepare for whatever you want to call it, the increasingly grim future. But we need to actually prepare and preparation is necessary in order to have the best chance of experiencing some sort of quality of life going forward. And we'll just leave it at that. We'll let the interview speak for itself, and we'll check in with you uh, on the other side. So today on the Enviro Show, we are joined once again by Guy McPherson, who, oh, I think we first uh, encountered Guy back 
at a talk that was given at uh, Greenfield Community College several years ago. It's got to be five or six years ago. And I thought that that presentation was really eye-opening. And since then, we've had a couple of discussions with Guy on the Enviro Show, but we want to catch up. It's been a few years since we've talked about the climate emergency. And what made me think of this was the recent kind of media coverage of the uh, Hansen paper that really said, you know what, folks, it's pretty much game over. Well, I think he did say it's game over for 1.5 degrees C. And really, there's a snowball chance in hell that we're not going to exceed two degrees. And I know from talking with you in the past, Guy, that other climate scientists have kind of grudgingly caught up with what you were saying a few years ago, is that we are going to blow way past two. And there are some climate scientists that are now saying, yeah, we're probably going to do that. Although there are still some who are saying we're going to find some great technology that's going to save us. But but anyway, I mean, we can talk about that that myth as well. But anyway, welcome back to the Enviro Show and bring our listeners up to date on what you've been doing uh, recently. I know you're now living in Vermont, pretty close to our listening area. And then let's talk a little bit about, or let's just catch up on what the latest kind of science is telling us and what we should be doing. I don't know how to phrase it with the remaining time that we have together. That sounds great. Especially if you weigh in with some answers. That's why we have you here. (laughs) Well, yes. So let's catch up. I think that when we last talked, I probably was not aware of a couple of reports put out by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. And they concluded in their October 8th, 2018 report, Global Warming of 1.5 Degrees, that even abrupt geophysical events do not approach current rates of human-driven change. This is based on peer-reviewed literature. And what this indicates is that we collectively as humanity are driving a faster rate of environmental change than the meteor that struck the planet about 66 million years ago. So that's astonishing all by itself. And the IPCC finally concluded that we were in the midst of irreversible climate change in its IPCC special report on the ocean and cryosphere and a changing climate, which came out September 24th, 2019. And that report indicates that an overheated ocean is responsible for the irreversibility of climate change. So we're in the midst of abrupt, irreversible climate change. How abrupt? The most abrupt in planetary history, as nearly as we can tell. And the irreversibility, it takes only one self-reinforcing feedback loop to conclude that we're in the midst of irreversible climate change. And I identified 68 such self-reinforcing feedback loops in a long essay at guymcpherson.com. That long essay is called Climate Change Summary, and it's on the first page of every blog post. And so we're in the midst of abrupt irreversible climate change. How do we act? What do we do? What does this mean? And at least for me, it comes down to how we act as individuals, which presumably will positively affect how we 
live within society. But I'm seeing a lot of people that disagree with me, so maybe I don't have this figured out yet. Well, I don't think we disagree with you on this show, for sure. We have been obviously talking about environmental things for, oh, we're we're getting pretty close to 20 years doing this show. I think we're in our 18th, maybe maybe more years. And we started out with the world scientists warning to the world, um, you know, way back. And that was just recently updated. I think the 20th year anniversary of that was updated recently. And that's one of the things that we started with and we've continued to talk about, you know, a lot of different environmental issues, but climate being one of the main focuses that we talk about constantly, you know, in various topics related to the climate emergency. And we've been calling it an emergency for a long time. I think we agreed with the feeling of uh, XR, Extinction Rebellion, that the first thing we needed to do was tell the truth and, you know, call it what it was, an emergency. And everything else was as, you know, Greta would say, blah, blah, blah. And so I think we have been on your team really for years. And so, you know, it, it is great to have you back here. And one of the things that, you know, specifically made me think of you was the James Hansen paper, you know, Global Warming in the Pipeline, that paper that did get some media coverage. And some of the coverage seemed to point out what Hansen has said is that there's no chance that we're going to stay below 1.5 degrees C of warming. Uh, we're we're past that already. Uh, and you've been saying that for years, but but Hansen even said there's very slim to no chance that we're going to stay below two. And others are now saying, well, it's likely that we're going to hit three or four, or some are even saying five. And I think that gets right to the point that you were just saying about is that there are there's all this inertia built into the change, that there's a certain amount of lag associated with it because of the warming of the ocean, the oceans absorbing that. And because of this other topic that we talked about, talked with you about, uh, you know, several years ago, the aerosol masking issue. And that was something that Hansen paid particular attention to in his paper by pointing out that since the amount of sulfur being discharged, especially from ocean-going freight ships, has decreased, that sulfur pollution or contamination that was going into the atmosphere that was blocking a significant amount of sunlight, that has been removed since they improved the quality of the oil that they were burning, because it used to be really bad, and now it's just not nearly as bad. But that aerosol masking has, what he has said, has now created a different trajectory for temperature rise. Now, other people are disagreeing with him, like Michael Mann. But I've looked at the paper and I understand, I think, you know, as best as I could, not a climate scientist, but I do have a science background. I understand that it, it is pretty confirmed to my mind that these concepts that you were talking about years ago are being accepted by others. And so if you could explain that concept of aerosol masking 
to our listeners a little bit and, and what your take is on that specific part of the, I don't know what to say, the feedback mechanisms associated with that or the way it was really hiding the actual warming that has already occurred. Right. So at the same time that industrial activity produces greenhouse gases, which of course trap heat once the planet heats up, at the same time we're producing those greenhouse gases, industrial activity also produces aerosols, these relatively small particles that go up into the atmosphere. Those particles stop incoming sunlight, acting as millions of tiny mirrors or umbrellas up in the atmosphere and thereby preventing the planet from warming up in the first place. So if it doesn't warm up, the greenhouse gases can't trap the heat. James Hansen, in many presentations and publications, has indicated that those aerosols fall out of the sky in about five days. So the response is very fast. Once we stop industrial activity or even slow industrial activity, as with, for example, ceasing to use bunker fuel, primarily in the Atlantic Ocean, which you talked about, and doing so causes the aerosols to fall out of the atmosphere and warm up the planet very quickly. This was also observed through increased heating regionally and also increased precipitation as a result of the pandemic, starting in the area around Wuhan, China, moving then to Africa and and other places with heavy industrial activity, such as Western Europe and even in the Northeastern United States. So this has all been verified in the peer-reviewed literature that reducing industrial activity causes an increased warming regionally and an increase in precipitation as a result. We've known since the 1970s when scientists were saying a warmer planet is a wetter planet. We've known that increased heat causes more precipitation to get trapped and what goes up must come down. Now, with respect to 2C, Andrew Y. Glickson pointed out that we had crossed the 2C mark in his October 9th, 2020 book, The Event Horizon. And then, interestingly, just last month, Professor Leon Simons, who's a frequent co-author of James Hansen, concluded that we had passed the 2C mark, and he was using as the baseline 2000 to 2009. Now, this is shocking because we're not talking about 1750 here as the baseline. We're not even talking about 1850, which some people have used more recently. We're, we're talking about 2000 to 2009. That's the baseline. And we've increased global average temperature more than two degrees C since then. So this is remarkable. And this is supported by, in fact, this is where he gets his data, is from NASA, the National Aerospace and Space Administration, and several organizations that report on weather and climate in Western Europe that represent government entities. So here we have government entities concluding that we have eclipsed the 2C mark, and in the latest case, using as a baseline 20 years ago and less. So this is quite remarkable. Now, the whole point of staying below 2C was to ensure that we didn't trigger self-reinforcing feedback loops, and only one of those self-reinforcing feedback loops is required to make climate change irreversible. And even the IPCC concluded that we had 
across that barrier as a result of an overheated ocean. So yes, even the political body known as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has concluded that we are in the midst of abrupt and irreversible climate change. Now, it's interesting because Michael Oppenheimer, the Albert G. Milbank Professor of Geosciences and International Affairs in the Woodrow Wilson School and the Department of Geosciences at Princeton University, he concluded in a, a paper on the Environmental Defense Fund blog from November 1st, 2007, titled How the IPCC Got Started. And he describes that the IPCC, which was created during the Ronald Reagan administration, was designed to fail. It replaced the advisory group on greenhouse gases, and it did so by setting such marks as two degrees C, when in fact the advisory group on greenhouse gases indicated that one degree C was the Rubicon we could not cross. And it's pretty obvious that we are in the midst of many self-reinforcing feedback loops, as reported in the peer-reviewed literature for the last 15 years or so. People don't really want to you know, admit this reminds me a lot of, you know, one of my favorite uh, authors, Aldo Leopold, who said this back in 1949, I think, about the penalties of an ecological education. And that is that you end up living alone in a world of wounds, and that the average person can't see what's happened around them. They don't understand it. But as an ecologist, you have to either harden your shell and make believe that the consequences of science are just none of your business, or you otherwise have to be like a doctor who sees the marks of death in the community, and the community believes itself well and just does not want to be told otherwise. And that's kind of a paraphrase of that quote from Aldo Leopold. But I think if you just put the climate science into that, instead of an ecological education, we're talking about the same thing here. We're talking about a society that wants to believe itself well and just does not want to be told otherwise. And the same thing has been happening with the climate dialogue, you know, the climate debate, although, uh, you know, there's more going on because obviously there have been all kinds of denial and delay and everything else associated with fossil fuel interests and you know governmental interests as well. But if that makes any sense to our listeners, how do we get past that penalty of having awareness that we're in this and that denial isn't really going to solve the problem? And actually, I, I think it's more like the problem doesn't have some kind of magic bullet solution like uh, what is being proposed and what will be proposed at this next COP meeting, which is, oh, carbon capture and storage is going to save us. You know, some technology is going to save us. Artificial intelligence is going to save us. And I think we need to kind of dispel that myth. So what is, what's your feeling about the chance of being saved by the fossil fuel industry, which is promoting carbon capture and storage as the solution to uh, allow them to continue to burn more oh fossil fuels forever. Oh, my. First of all, Aldo Leopold, the, the a Sand County Almanac was published in 1949, a year after he died, helping a neighbor put out a grass fire. And 
so this goes back a long time and he was pointing out the precautionary principle the precautionary principle is clearly out of date almost nobody is relying upon the precautionary principle anymore james hansen used to talk about it but he, he wrote a book called storms of my grandchildren and indicating at least by title that the problem lay in the distant future it, it's a problem for his grandchildren to deal with and michael mann has a teenage daughter and I'm, if that isn't impacting his findings, then he's an outright liar because the information he's presenting is completely contrary to abundant evidence. Let me give an example. There's an open access peer-reviewed paper in Nature Communications published June 15th, 2021. It's called Significant Underestimation of Radiative Forcing by Aerosol Cloud Interactions Derived from Satellite-Based Methods. And it's written by Haling Jha and three other scholars. Again, it's open access, it's peer-reviewed. It indicates a 55% global reduction as a result of aerosol masking. In addition, it's 133% over land. That's where most of us live, I'm afraid. So if we lose aerosols, all of them, which, as James Hansen has indicated several times, that can happen in five days, that will drive up the temperature over land by 133%. We're already over two, as pointed out by Andrew Weiglickson in his 2020 book, The Event Horizon, and then more recently by this collection of government bodies I pointed out from Western Europe and the United States. So that means that if we lose the aerosols, we could see an abrupt rise of up to three and about three and a half degrees C above the 1750 baseline. That's that's an enormous number. And as ecologists understand, and apparently very few other people, the rate of environmental change is what's important here. It's the rate of environmental change that limits the ability of populations and species to keep up. If the rate of environmental change is occurring too rapidly, then nobody keeps up. If the temperature changes, if the rainfall changes, if any aspect of the physical environment changes abruptly, it is very, very difficult for populations and species to keep up with that rate of change. And that's what we're, what we're witnessing right now. We've seen it regionally, as I indicated, in the midst of the pandemic. And for those kinds of effects to occur global globally would be catastrophic for not just for our species, but for all life on Earth. So Guy Dio here, I'm wondering, that's pretty frightening, but I'm wondering, you, you mentioned five degrees centigrade earlier. Could, could you Give our listeners sort of paint a picture of what the Earth looks like, what happens on Earth with numbers like that. Well, according to a paper in Scientific Reports published November 13th, 2018 by Strona and Bradshaw, a five to six degree Celsius temperature rise within a span of a few centuries will cause the extinction of all life on Earth, all life on Earth over a matter of centuries. We're talking about something happening much faster than that. We're already more than 2C above the 1750 baseline, as concluded by, finally, a large number of government bodies catching up with Andrew Weiglickson in his 2020 book. And whether we lose aerosol masking or whether we keep overheating the planet through the creation of fossil fuels, it's bad news either way. So what does it look like? Fortunately, we haven't been there yet. So anything I say falls into the category of 
a guess, albeit perhaps an informed guess, about what it looks like. I can't imagine that this set of living arrangements will be retained once we get into the arena of three or four degree C temperature rise. That's just, that's too too soon, too fast for our species and others to keep up. What happens then? Even first responders stop responding when their own families are in danger. They go home, as most rational people would, to spend their time taking care of the people who are most meaningful for them. What happens when we don't have first responders responding to an emergency? Well, nuclear facilities melt down. Interestingly, the result of nuclear plants melting down was displayed in the 2021 film Finch. And very subtly, they they never indicated that people are getting super fast sunburns as a result of nuclear power plants melting down, that ionizing radiation going up into the stratosphere and stripping away stratospheric ozone. But that's clearly what they were displaying. How the writers came to have that information at their fingertips and put it into writing is beyond me. But it was an astonishing film, terrible, awful, but really amazing with respect to the accuracy of what the future could could quite possibly look like. If this set of living arrangements, what we call Western civilization, ceases to exist or even slows industrial activity, we will undoubtedly see a much more rapid heating of the planet. And already the ability of vertebrates to keep up with near-term projected rates of change is seriously outstripped. And the same applies to mammals. Vertebrates and mammals can't keep up with the rate of change. Well, humans fall into both of those categories, vertebrates and mammals. And what that suggests to me is that at some point in the not-too-distant future, we will cease to be able to keep up with the rate of environmental change, whether it's increased heating, increased precipitation, sea level rise, or dozens of other outcomes of abrupt irreversible climate change. We're in real trouble here, and I see very few people reporting that we are in that sort of trouble. In fact, there's a lot of people who disagree with me, obviously, like everybody on Earth, as nearly as I can tell. And these people underestimate the seriousness of the situation at both ends of the spectrum. Some say that climate change happens all the time, that the climate is always changing, that these are just cycles. It's no big deal. And others say that we can adapt to anything. We're humans, after all. We are so clever that we can adapt to anything. Well, there have been eight previous species in the genus Homo that have gone extinct within the last few million years. If eight other species managed to go extinct in a relatively short period of time, almost all those were as a result of climate change, by the way, and we're in the midst of the most abrupt climate change in planetary history, then I just don't see how we can keep up. Yes, we are clever. Yes, we are really, really smart, but not as smart as we think we are, or we wouldn't find ourselves in this situation right now. Humans, as very complex organisms, depend upon many other organisms for our own survival. And we sort of lose track of that, too. We depend upon many other species for our well-being. We lose track of that. So as a consequence, we're in the midst of a mass extinction event because we we have come to view other organisms as resources, as 
things for us to use. That's problematic. And so what it obviously leads to and has led to is the lack of appreciation for other species and therefore treating them as if they don't matter when in fact they really matter pollinators just think about pollinators for a minute and how much we would lose if we lost a significant number of pollinators several years ago it was pointed out through peer-reviewed papers and lots of conversation among scientists that we're in the midst of an insect apocalypse that invertebrates are dying at an astonishing rate those invertebrates again small things do a lot for us and to not to not recognize the benefits provided by other species is one way to further hasten our own demise what can what can we do how can we live our lives with the time that is left and live fully and graciously so that we can not ignore, you know, all of the stuff we've been talking about, but act in a way in spite of or because of this this level of awareness. Right. That's a great question. You know, it's interesting. We all knew we were going to die when we turned 12 years old or so. And when I was in Western Europe on a speaking tour in 2015, there was a woman who celebrated, who had just celebrated her 117th birthday. And when asked to ponder those first 117 years of her life, she said, it seemed rather short. 117 years. It seemed rather short. We aren't going to make it to 117. I can pretty much guarantee you almost nobody on the planet is going to make it to 117 years. Our lives will seem short when we when we come down to the end of them and we recognize this is the end of my life, I can almost guarantee you that that virtually nobody is going to say, well, that was enough, right? I'm ready to die. For what, what I do personally is adhere to some, maybe even most of the principles of modern Stoicism. Modern Stoicism stems from something express, ex, expressed by Seneca and he he indicated that there are phenomena over which we have control and others that we do not we must focus on the on the factors over which we have control and not on the things we don't doing so will alleviate our own suffering while allowing us to have a positive impact on society there's only so much you can do there's only so much i can do i'm i'm not suggesting that we become horribly indecent people, quite the opposite. We have the ability to treat the people in our daily lives with great respect and love. Let's do that. We have the ability within our communities to influence legislation and regulations in a way that benefits other people. Consider, for example, people of color, people who are homosexual, people who are viewed as different in one way or another. And those people in the civilization, like all civilizations before this one, are discriminated against horribly. Let's go to town meetings. Let's try to make sure that doesn't happen anymore, or at least reduce the harm that we're causing to people of color and people who have different sexual orientations than most of us. Uh, 
So there are things we can do at the individual and at the, at the community level that actually matter. Let's do those things. That's that's my take from modern stoicism and focusing on the phenomena over which we have control instead of focusing on all those things we don't have any control over, which is, let's admit it, almost everything. Yes, I like to keep up with the news, even though the news is horrible on a daily basis. Well, yeah. just just one final one final idea comes from the peer-reviewed literature, Geophysical Research Letters, published on July 10th, 2019. Its paper is titled Radiative Heating of an Ice-Free Arctic Ocean. And it refers to losing the ice floating on the Arctic Ocean and what consequences that will have for climate change. Once we lose that, and, and we're losing ice floating on the Arctic Ocean at an astonishing rate, very, very rapidly, and I see a report almost every year indicating that it's being lost sooner than we expected. Once we lose it, that will be the equivalent of one trillion tons of carbon dioxide emissions, and it will happen very, very quickly. We will lose habitat for humans and probably for all life on Earth within a year or so after we lose ice floating on the Arctic Ocean. Now, interestingly, Jennifer McKinnon at the Scripps Institution, part of the Scripps Institute, and also at the University of California, San Diego, said in CBS News on April 23rd, 2021, that, that we're probably going to lose that ice in 2022. Obviously, we didn't. James Anderson, the Harvard atmospheric scientist famous for discovering the link between chlorofluorocarbons and the Antarctic ozone hole, said, quote, the chance there will be permanent ice in the Arctic after 2022 is essentially zero. That's a direct quote. In Forbes on January 15th, 2018, after a presentation he delivered in Chicago. Fortunately, we've been very lucky. We didn't have an ice-free Arctic Ocean in 2021, 2022, 2023. We're beyond that point now. But when it does happen, and I suspect this is the single phenomenon over which we have least control that is very likely to drive us to extinction, and that's the loss of Arctic ice, and it's disappearing very rapidly. When it happens, we'll have a year or two with habitat for humans on Earth, and I don't look forward to that day. But one of the things that I try to do is keep people informed about where we're at. That's that's the purpose of my blog, and it has been since it was established in 2007, is to inform people about what's going on in the world so that we as individuals have the ability to make choices that are consistent with the knowledge that mostly is kept from our view. I know that's a long answer. Sorry about that. It's a good answer. No, I, and yeah. we'll put a link to that blog right on top of our Enviro Show blog. Yeah, no, I think that was a good good way to, to wrap it up and and let folks know that you know something you know that we don't that we don't necessarily pay enough attention to is that we all should realize that our our days are numbered, you know, whatever level you want to look at that. And we should live the best lives that we can, considering that we have a certain number left. And so, well, I think we'll leave it with that, Guy. It's, it is always great 
to talk with you and uh, great to catch up. And now that you're so, I know that you're living so close to this area, we will have to uh, be in contact more regularly. That'd great. be great. I appreciate, appreciate the opportunity, Glenn and Dio. Thanks great. very much. Thank you. Well, what do you think about that? Heavy. But I think the take-home message is really important, and that is do what you can locally, do what you can personally, get together with other people, form a mutual support network. And luckily, you know, we have a lot of that going on in Western Mass. We always have. We've always had a lot of strong community involvement in things, but this is going to be a challenge. And we ought to realize that we're going to need each other and we're going to need to face this with courage. I think that's what it is ultimately going to take. It's going to take a lot of courage and local resourcefulness, but we've got that. And I think we have no choice, right? We really have no choice. We're not going to be saved by some magic technology that some genius is going to invent that's going to pull us off of the cliff that we've already been going over for a long time. I think if we all work together, then you know we'll essentially have a community parachute that will help soften the landing, right? But yeah. let's get serious about this. Stay active. That's really critical. We still need to pass legislation. We still need to do everything that we possibly can. And that means being involved and being active. Just don't give up because you don't lose until you give up. So right. don't give up. That's right. And here on the UR show, don't forget our motto, action is the best antidote to despair. And we have some actions right here on a bus stop billboard. Oh, Glenn, why don't you start off with the, this one and that important hearing coming up? All right. Wednesday, November 29th. It's, uh, I think that's starting at noon. It's the Environment and Natural Resources Joint Committee of the state legislature. That's a hearing. And they'll be taking testimony, oral testimony, on the Forest Protection Bill H4150. And uh, you can sign up for that, but you can also watch it. It'll be streamed. A lot of us will be offering comments on that bill. And that is the most critical bill that we need to pass in this session in order to protect our state-owned forests. And I can't emphasize how critical it is. We've talked about it a lot on this show, but let's get that bill over the finish line. And for more information on that, go to the blog and click on the links there. There's some sign-on letters and, um, and take action, get involved. We can do this if we all push, push this over the finish line. All right, let's jump ahead to Wednesday, December 6th at 6 p.m., a community forum about the climate impact of private jet expansion. Massport is planning a massive hangar build-out for private jets at Hanscom Field, which is the largest single development in Hanscom's history. This will impact our community by increasing greenhouse gas emissions, levels, and more, please join in person. You can do that at the Concord Free Public Library or on Zoom. And if you go to the blog and click on the link, you can get registered for that. 
right. And then Saturday, December 9th at 11 a.m., uh, there's an old growth forest hike in Stockbridge at Ice Glen. And you can join the Massachusetts Sierra Club for a little winter outing. The Ice Glen Trail is about a 1.4 mile round trip. So if you're fairly able-bodied, you should have no problem with that. And there'll be stops along the way where there'll be interpretations of the old growth forest. And, you know, it's a pretty fantastic area. I'm not sure who's going to be leading that hike other than probably Celeste from the Sierra Club. So anyway, for more information about that, go to the blog, click on the link, and I will see you there because I'm planning on going uh, out to that hike. And so join us to see some real old growth. Pretty spectacular. Excellent. All right. That's about it for now. But like we always say, we check uh, check out the blog almost daily and update it, put in new events. And I'm sure there'll be more by the time you hear this show. So, Glenn, did you have a good Thanksgiving? It's not really a holiday that has a lot of meaning for me personally. But I do often think of how the indigenous people welcomed the European visitors. And then just a few years later, they realized they were being invaded and the uh, Europeans were wiping out the natives. So, you know, that Thanksgiving whole concept was something that was kind of sort of a hallmark holiday. It's an uneasy holiday. Well, it's also a good time to remember what we can be thankful of, and that's what we did on this end. So we're thankful for all you Show listeners for hanging with us and uh, offering any suggestions along the way for this show. Yeah, yeah, I'll say, you know, I'm really thankful and grateful for the community of activists that we have here in Western Mass. It's amazing when folks get active, especially in climate or environmental things. And that's really something to be eternally thankful for. Indeed. Okay. I believe we are out of here. This Dio saying adios. One more thing, though. Oh, what? What did I forget? Try listening. Oh, you mean listening to your mother? Yes. That's, that's right. I'm Glenn Ayers, and we'll see you next time. I am Mother Earth. And I approve of this message.